Good evening. Welcome to The Critical Hour. We are coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. The U.S. and Ukraine are implying that Crimea may be a target for the HIMARS long-distance rocket system, but Russia is threatening a crushing response. Also, the U.S. says it will train Ukrainian pilots on U.S. aircraft and Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky allegedly ditches his security chief. Joining us now to discuss these and more is Mark Sloboda. Mark's a Moscow-based international relations security analyst. Mark, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Garland, Dr. Leon, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on the show. The State Department on Sunday implied that Ukrainian forces are allowed to use U.S.-provided high-mobility artillery rocket systems, HIMARS, against Russian targets in Crimea. Also, a Russia's response is threatened if the Ukrainians attack Crimea, and it's alleged that it will be harsh and that Kiev will pay a heavy price. Mark Sloboda, your thoughts? Um, well, I mean, from a military standpoint, right, um, Crimea hosts Russian naval and military bases. So in that sense, uh, in the scope of Russia's intervention in Ukraine, it, the Crimea is a legitimate military target uh, for the Kiev regime. Um, however, um, they, of course, have to prioritize uh, and they are – uh, losing at the front. So it seems inconceivable why they would choose to strike there rather than when they are losing territory, where they are losing territory against military forces. That, of course, would simply be an act of, of what is essentially political terrorism. The uh, Kiev regime uh, presidential advisor, Alexei Aristovich, uh, has said that as soon as they have a capability, Kiev regime military forces will strike the Crimean bridge. Of course, that is a the, the most important and symbolic act of political terrorism. It has no strategic value, particularly since um, Russia, through the Donbass, already controls territory on mainland Ukraine, extending all the way from Russia south uh, into the Crimea. So, so the bridge, striking the bridge in that sense, has no strategic military value. It would simply be political and symbolic. The Russian response uh, would be um, – well, it would mean the end of Ukraine. There, there would no longer be any state that could be identified as Ukraine. That would leave me no sense that Russia would completely mobilize their military forces. They would call up their reserves, which has not been done. They've only tapped 10 to 20 percent of their military thus far. They would mobilize all of it and Ukraine would cease to exist as a state. Um, so – they have to decide whether that they think that is worth it. Of course, they think that the resulting Russian response would uh, be of such a magnitude that the West would then directly intervene in Western Ukraine at the least on the Kiev regime's behalf. Uh, but they're more than willing to go to World War III. So we'll just have to see how this plays out. Former Russian President Dmitry Medvedev who serves as the deputy chair of Russia's Security Council, 
warned yesterday that if Ukraine launched attacks on Crimea, it would mean doomsday for Ukrainian leadership. I think you've just answered what does doomsday mean because that was that was my question. But and yeah. if so, okay. So then my next question is, if that is the Russian response, is that what the United States has been trying to bait Russia into from the very beginning, so that the so that the United States can then go with the narrative? Look. You see, we told you this is what they were all about to begin with, and now the United States will use this as the rationale to do what the United States wants to do anyway. Hopefully that question makes sense. Yeah, yeah. No, well, well first, I mean, they, they, uh, Medvedev specifically mentioned uh, the Ukrainian political leadership, and I think that is important. Thus far, Russia has refrained from targeting the Ukrainian political leadership. I mean, Zelensky, members of his administration, uh, you know, the uh, heads of the military and, and, and so forth. Uh, they have the capability, right? As they've aptly demonstrated, they fire cruise missiles from as far away as the Caspian Sea and hit targets pinpoint. They have the intelligence. We've, we've seen that as well, but they have refrained from doing it. This is different from U.S. Uh, military uh, interventions, invasions uh, in Iraq, in Libya, where the political leadership was considered command and control and fair game. Um, if Russia uh, sees a type of escalation like a Kiev regime military attack on Russian uh, state territory, including the Crimea, um, particularly with uh, U.S. weapons, uh, that I have no doubts that, as well as seeking to end uh, Ukraine as a state, they will specifically target the leadership. As to you know this being what the U.S. you know intends all along, they have a plan for an escalatory cycle. Um, it seems entirely possible because the U.S. is doing absolutely nothing to encourage diplomacy. They're doing the opposite, absolute opposite, whether with the flow of arms uh, and money uh, to the Kiev regime or the refusal to engage in any diplomatic activity uh, regarding a, a ceasefire, uh, you know, a, a peace settlement, anything along the lines. Um, they seem bent on escalation at this point, um, and one does not know where along the path they might change, if at all. Uh, I did want to ask you about a story I saw in RT today. Um, Gazprom declares force majeure on EU gas flow. Energy giant sorts, uh, cites extraordinary circumstances outside of its control. They say that they're going to – they've declared force majeure on gas supplies at least one major uh, – to at least one major EU customer, and they're talking about um, Nord Stream 1. It sounds to me like they're saying, hey – there's war. There's things that are out of our control. You ain't getting no more gas. Uh, would that be a wrong interpretation? We don't know. All right. This is being reported by Reuters, not just by RT. So uh, it is definitely out there. And they have mentioned a letter that has been sent to one European, at least one European gas customer declaring force majeure. We don't know the circumstances of this. It was sent 
at the time that Russia was uh, – Gazprom was entering their maintenance cycle, a scheduled maintenance cycle on the Nord Stream 1 pipeline, which is supposed to end uh, next week. Um, the EU fears that even after that, gas will not resume pumping through Nord Stream 1. The, 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 we don't know because we don't have enough details about who this customer is, what this force majeure situation is, because it would seem to me that regularly scheduled maintenance is not a force majeure uh, condition and that they are talking about something else. And if that is true, then very well we may see that gas does not flow even after the maintenance is fixed, at least to some European gas customers. Uh, and for those who don't understand, a force majeure is a contractual clause that a person says because of extraordinary circumstances, what many would call acts of God, uh, we, we can't fulfill our contract. But so wouldn't wouldn't a lot of the conditions that the sanctions are putting on Gazprom, those would be considered force majeure circumstances. Yes. I mean, in, in other instances already, Russia has referred to force majeure uh, in reference to to other economic uh, responses uh, because of the uh, West's economic war of sanctions on Russia. And I have no doubt that uh, if they saw uh, benefit from it, they would declare force majeure with with gas supplies as well. Here's another article, and to me, to be quite frank, it just sounds like money laundering. The House approved $100 million in funding to train Ukrainian pilots to use U.S. aircraft as part of the NDAA it passed. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky has asked since March for American-made F-15 and F-16 fighter jets. I don't think they're giving them the fighter jets, but that's that, that, beside it. You can't train someone in a couple of months to use an F-15 or an F-16. Hey, there you go. Go fight the Russians like I'm handing them a sword or a knife, which, again, takes a long time to learn how to use a sword. But to me, it just sounds like propaganda. But, uh, maybe I'm wrong. Your thoughts, Mark? Yeah. OK, so right now, this is an amendment attached to a defense authorization bill that was passed by the House. All right. So it will have to go, uh, of course, to reconciliation with the Senate version and eventually being signed. We will have to keep an eye on this amendment and see if it remains attached, um, uh, you know, because it, it, we have some time and until, uh, you know, we will see uh, a, a the next defense authorization passed. Theoretically, if it remains attached uh, and it goes through then Ukrainian pilots could begin training around this time next year. Right? That is when they would start training. Of course, we don't know how much of, of the Kiev regime will still be around in a year. But I think this is definitely a shot by some U.S. politicians that want to see the U.S. send uh, fighter jets uh, to uh, Ukraine because you don't train Ukrainian pilots to fly fighter jets in the middle of a war uh, on fighter jets that they don't have and you do not intend to give them. So whether the Pentagon agrees with this <laughs> is not at all clear. This is coming from politicians. So it's something to keep an eye on. But doesn't this also send a signal to but I, I'll assume that this was done 
with the coordination of the administration. So isn't this sending a signal that kind of backs up Joe Biden's statements about we're in this till the end, you know, we're in this, we're here to stay. And also how dangerous of a technology transfer would this be? Yeah, I'm not exactly sure that how much coordination is happening uh, with the administration on this. Um, Yeah. um, The person speaking on behalf of this amendment is a Republican. Uh, You know, take that for what it's worth. Of course, there is not a whole lot of degree of separation between Democrats and Republicans, uh, you know, on the issue of Ukraine. Again, I think we'll have to watch we'll have to watch uh, how this bill progresses. Uh, But, you know, Every indication coming out of the Biden administration is they are increasing their escalatory cycle. They are sending new and more powerful weapons each and every month when the previous weapons don't suddenly cause a reversal uh, in the fortunes uh, or the strategic balance of the situation. Does that lead to the U.S. supplying F-15s and F-16s to the Kiev regime? Possibly. But – Something that's a year out at this point, I'm not particularly worried about at the moment. Uh, we got about a minute and a half. Ukraine, Zelensky suspends security chief and general prosecutor. Mark. Yeah, they've already walked that back. They say uh, uh, they first announced they were fired. Now they announced they're suspended. It's over the issue of hundreds, uh, some 690 uh, of government officials and law enforcement officials in the Kiev regime who have collaborated with Russia. Likewise, 60 agents at the SBU. This is why they are supposedly being suspended pending review. If you've got hundreds of your own law enforcement, government officials and intelligence agents who are collaborating with the, quote, enemy in you know trying to remove your regime, that is a regime that is failing and crumbling and does not have a lot of support, despite how the Western media presents the situation of all of Ukraine united behind the Zelensky regime. Uh, Often history tells us that that is a sign of an authoritarian purge in a regime that is run (laughs) by a madman. We can think of a... That can't be because we know that under Zelensky, Ukraine is a liberal democratic paradigm. Uh, yeah, I should have. No, <clears throat> I should have figured that out, Mark. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. President Biden's trip to the Middle East ends as observers struggle to deconstruct the outcome. Also, Israel's army chief is heading to Morocco for his first official trip. Joining us to discuss this matter, we have Laith Marouf. Laith is a broadcaster and journalist based in Beirut. Laith, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you for having me. The Washington Post writes, capping a four-day trip to the Middle East, President Biden laid out his vision of a future for the region on Saturday, a framework he hopes amplifies 
American values and investment in this part of the world and blunts the influence of Russia and China. Laith Maroof, I would imagine the people in the regions, a significant portion of them see things differently. Your thoughts? Definitely. And I mean, the arrogance of the American president saying that they will not leave the Middle East uh, alone and that they will not leave a vacuum behind them. I mean, there are people living there. They are supposed to be sovereigns and the United States is not supposed to be there in any case. Uh, Of course, we have three decades of war uninterrupted war in the Middle East caused by the American empire, millions dead in Iraq, in Syria, in Libya, in Yemen, in Somalia, and what have you, and um, millions more of refugees. And uh, definitely most people in uh, what we call the Middle East, Western Asia, North Africa, are sick and tired of uh, American imperialism and would rather do business and trade with others uh, because that trade does not come with uh, imperial uh, military forces to occupy your land. Laith, one of the things that I have learned over time is that usually when the United States says it's not doing something, that's exactly what it's doing or that's exactly what it's planning to do. And so when I look at why, when I ask myself, uh, why are so many of these Arab countries now forming a a coalition and working with Israel, that says to me that they're afraid of and preparing for the United States to leave and that they see that Israel is going to be America's proxy in the region. Yes, partially is that is true, but we also heard uh, from the Saudi foreign minister that there will be no such thing as an Arab NATO, that there will be no alliance with Israel, that the Saudis uh, have uh, negotiations that are going well with Iran. So on the one hand, we know, of course, that the Saudis lie you know, all the time, similar to the Americans, uh, but it's clear for anyone that has, uh, you know, one brain cell working in their head that the Israelis cannot defend themselves against Hamas, let alone Hezbollah. So how are the Israelis going to defend the Saudis who can't also defend themselves against uh, Ansarullah in Yemen? So the, the, the fact of the matter, it is clear probably for any of the military strategists in the Gulf states that uh, with the exit of the United States, they have to better their uh, relations with uh, their neighbors, that they better uh, you know, ask for forgiveness for what they did in Yemen, in Syria, in Iraq, and what have you. And the truth of the matter also is that this apology will have to come with a price. So the, the Gulf countries are now stuck between a rock and a hard place. Uh, the United States uh, will be exiting West Asia because it wants to have war with Russia and China, and it cannot maintain its troops in West Asia while it does that. It also uh, is the reality is that the Israelis cannot defend these Gulf countries, uh, and therefore, what are they going to do? Uh, it's all up in the air now. Something I found interesting, and I'd like to get your thoughts on it. <clears throat> The BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, 
two countries that have that either have applied or will be applying, Saudi Arabia and Iran. It seems to me that that implies that if they're both, they understand how um, Russia and China are going, you know, China, Russia are going to be the leaders of this, um, of this group, clearly. Um, they have the, the, you know, the economic and military might um, right off the bat in the commodities. It seems to me that because of the way Russia and China do business, if Saudi Arabia and Iran are both Im uh, applying to be members, does that imply that maybe there's some they're looking at some kind of rapprochement, some kind of detente, or they wouldn't be? I don't know. Is that am I am I um, assuming too much to see the both of them joining this 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 group? Well, look, you know, the Saudis definitely are trying to uh, have one foot in each door uh, because they can see their master is leaving. Uh, but, you know, the strategic uh, relationships between Russia and China on the one hand and Iran on the other are way more advanced. We know that there is integration in terms of uh, financial systems that have happened over the last five years. We've seen uh, Russia and China, both of them signing, um, you know, mo 20 somewhat year uh, strategic uh, partnerships with Iran. And we know that this tripet uh, between Iran, China and Russia is actually the uh, bulwark of uh, defense for uh, Asia specifically. And so, you know, Saudi are, is trying to chase uh, behind uh, Iran in this relationship with uh, Russia and, and China. But of course, uh, you know, with uh, Iran being in strategic relationship with those two giants, do they really need the Saudis? I doubt it. You know, there's not much the Saudis can offer Iran, uh, sorry, China and Russia that the Iranians cannot uh, offer a better deal on. So, well, you know, I think it is the way that Russia and China are approaching the Saudis is the same way they are approaching Turkey. Uh, they want to uh, give enough assurances for the Saudis that, that they will maintain their sovereignty in the case that the Americans leave. Uh, but it's up to the Saudis to really actually uh, go that path. The Post also reports that uh, Biden says he confronted the Saudis directly uh, on the assassination of Jamal Khashoggi. Well, OK, so Biden may have said to Mohammed bin Salman, I think you did it. And MBS said, no, I didn't. And Joe Biden said, oh, well, I think you did it. OK, so what? You're still you're still selling them weapons. Uh, you're still supporting their efforts in Yemen. You're you're basically still supporting them with your action. So what you said, you know, my okay, Joe. So what's your point? I mean, how it, is that? It, it how is that being further. interpreted? Okay, okay, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, like the Saudi media, which I don't know if I want to believe them or not, but the Saudi media are claiming that when uh, Biden confronted uh, MBS on the uh, assassination of Khashoggi, that uh, MBS replied to him, well, uh, the Americans uh, did Abu Ghraib. And uh, what about uh, uh, Abu Akhli, Shirin Abu Akhli, the American Palestinian journalist that was assassinated by the Israelis? 
What have you done about them? This is what the Saudi media is claiming. So if this is true, and even if it's not true, since the Saudi media is responding with that, well, that's the truth. The United States has no uh, no, no way it cannot can can charge anybody with human rights violations while it is doing the same. So uh, that's that's already a, a mute uh, point in the Arab world. But uh, I would like to point out also that uh, there was a report yesterday in uh, media in the in the Arabic world that the uh, American. A uh, lawyer of the Khajukhshi family who was uh, traveling uh, to Turkey with a stopover in the United Arab Emirates, and he was nabbed by the police forces of the United Arab Emirates and charged with, uh, you know, false charges. The man has never been to the UAE and is now languishing in uh, Emirati jails. So here is an actual the lawyer of the Khajukhji family who happens to be also American, who is now being abused by the Emirates for daring to defend uh, Khajukhji and his family. And again, uh, the American administration is doing nothing to protect its citizens. So we see that the lives of Americans themselves is irrelevant when it comes to the strategic interests of the United States, the United States will uh, throw its own citizens in the Golags uh, in front of firing squads if that is good for it. So is the uh, Hajoji attorney, family attorney, is he an American citizen as well? Yes, yes. Okay. And he is now languishing in an Emirati jail. Wow. Yeah, the other thing I think is of consequence too is the overall dynamics, the fact that um, the Biden administration was calling some of these Gulf leaders and they refused to take his call. The fact that he has to come here and grovel at the feet of the Saudis and the Saudis pretty much, you know, dismiss Joe Biden, you know, um, rebuke, re, you know, rebut the things that he said and, you know, basically say, you know, he's lying. That's not what happened. And our guy pushed back on him. To me, all of that disrespect shows the weakness of the U.S. empire. There was a time when they wouldn't dream of that. And I'm not saying the weakness of Joe Biden. I'm saying that the world is looking at what's happening in Ukraine, looking at what's happening with China and saying, you guys ain't got it no more. You're weak. You're soft. Other people are growing up and we don't respect you. That's what it seems to me. And anyway, your thoughts, Lee? Yeah. And I mean, look, uh, Biden went to ask the uh, Gulf uh, monarchs to pump more oil. And openly, the Saudis said, we're at maximum. We're pumping 13 million barrels a day and we're not going to increase that. And you know what the Saudis are actually doing? They're buying Russian oil <laughs> at cut prices, cut rate prices and running all of their economy on Russian oil, and then they're exporting their oil at a higher price to the West. So, I mean, this is, I mean, <laughs> the whole world knows it. This is hilarious. I mean, this is the same thing India is doing, is buying all this Russian oil and actually exporting that Russian oil, because India doesn't even have oil, <laughs> is exporting that Russian oil to Europe at a higher price. So we have uh, a situation where, uh, much of the world now knows that the uh, American empire is a paper tiger, that uh, there is now uh, not only superpowers like Russia and China that can challenge this uh, paper tiger, but even Iran, even Venezuela, 
Uh, even Syria can withstand an American invasion. Uh, and uh, the, the plot, uh, you know, the movie is over. Uh, the American century is done. And it is now up to the American public and the Western public to rein in their governments to make sure that they don't drag us to a nuclear war because they cannot, they don't want to accept equality in a multipolar world where humanity is free of uh, Western domination after 600 years. Middle East Eye reports Israel's army chief to visit Morocco in first official trip. Aviv Kachavi will be the first Israeli chief of staff to visit Morocco as ties strengthen between Morocco and Israel. What are we to make of this? And does this demonstrate the, the, the strengthened ties that Joe Biden is trying to develop? Yeah, well, look, uh, this is maybe the first open, um, you know, declared visit by the uh, Zionist chief of staff. We know that the monarchy of Morocco has been a vessel of the West, has been actually the main, um, you know, provider of uh, quote unquote Arab Jewish population to Israel in exchange for uh, it maintaining its status as a, as a favored uh, you know, country in North Africa. But look, this is actually a threat to Algeria. Algeria will not be allowing any presence of Israeli troops on the territory of Morocco. And uh, this is going to only increase the possibilities of a military hostilities in North Africa. And that is going to spill trouble for all the Mediterranean countries on the north side of the Mediterranean, France and, and, and Spain and Portugal specifically. We've been talking with Laith Maruth. He's a broadcaster and journalist based in Beirut. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. The U.S. seems to be trying to drag Japan and South Korea into conflict with China. Joining us to discuss this and more, we have K.J. No. K.J. is an activist, a writer, and a teacher. K.J., welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. You know, we're talking about a very interesting article. Japan and South Korea can no longer let history thwart cooperation. That's the term cooperation. The term that comes to my mind is capitulation. How Washington can strengthen relations between its East Asian, again, allies as opposed to vassals. KJ, your thoughts on this important article? Well, it is a very important article because, you know, it's published in Foreign Affairs and Foreign Affairs is the bellwether or the um, foreshadowing of uh, official U.S. policy. But the basic statement of this article is that China and Russia are, are threats, are imminent threats. Uh, Japan and South Korea must coordinate with the United States to fight China. And they list in pretty, uh, you know, extensive detail that Japan must send liaison officers 
offices to coordinate with the CFC and the USFK. Uh, uh, Korea must send offices to the U.S. forces in Japan. They should all military exercise together. They should coordinate m- missile exercises together, including South Korea's kill chain, that they should develop missiles together, that they should rehearse air-sea battle in close supply chains and exclude China, coordinate military modernization, and that they should war game fighting with China over Taiwan. That's a pretty tall order. And of course, you know, this is not something that South Koreans or even the Japanese population would do willingly. These are essentially marching orders that are being delivered to vassal states. It says in this piece that Japan, South Korea, and the U.S. share common security threats. Chief among them is North Korea, uh, which has made great strides in its military capabilities. Uh, Kim Jong-un has conducted dozens of tests intended to threaten Seoul and launched medium-range missiles that can strike Japan. That's one way of looking at it, but is another way of looking at it that Kim Jong-un in North Korea is developing these weapons and flexing as a defensive tactic to prevent uh, South Korea via the United States, to prevent Japan from attacking North Korea. Yeah, I think that's absolutely correct. North Korea has a deterrent military. Uh, it's uh, It has a nuclear deterrent, which it's been developing for uh, decades. And the message is very clear. They understand their position in the geostrategic, geopolitical order of things. <laughs> they understand that North Korea is a pretext and a pawn uh, under which the U.S. Uh, wants to militarize the Pacific in order to encircle and, uh, you know, take down China. And their military capacity is, it's a very logical and very measured uh, uh, military deterrent. uh, And their messaging is also very measured and clear. But the message uh, to Japan and also to Korea is, uh, you know, please don't get involved in this. This is uh, a fight between the United States and North Korea and China. Uh, And to the extent that you engage in this war, you yourselves create, uh, you know, paint targets on your back. The other part of it is, I think, um, you know, to some extent, countries, though they may not, not say it, are kind of looking at what's going on in Ukraine. And they're saying, okay, the U.S. is saying we've got to create a Pacific NATO. And literally, there are articles now saying we need a Middle East NATO. So it's like the U.S. says we've got to get together groups around the world to confront all the various poles of power that are rising as though they could stop them. It's whack-a-mole. Iran's getting more powerful. China's getting more powerful. Russia's getting more powerful. What happens when somebody in South America gets more powerful? It has become farcical. I hate to keep using that term, that the United States is trying to create NATOs all over the place, but they want you to be the next Ukraine and get, you know, I'm saying whether it's South Korea or Japan, they want you to be the next Ukraine. They want you to be the next proxy uh, proxy and get pounded into the ground so they can walk away um, harmless. 
Your thoughts? Yes, that's exactly the idea, that they want to NATOize the planet. Uh, they want to prevent the rise of any alternate pole of development or uh, any economic model that's not the global neoliberal capitalist model that uh, extracts wealth from the global south to the global north. Uh, and yes, they want um, you know uh, the, the entire world uh, to pick sides, and they want to to establish proxies, and certainly North Korea, uh, sorry, uh, South Korea and Japan are uh, being enabled and uh, recruited as proxies for this war, as they have been for a very long time. Uh, I think that countries around the world are seeing the developments, they're seeing the cracks in the dam, they know that there are not enough fingers to keep it from uh, deluging, um, you know, for, uh, from breaking through. And therefore, you know, they are walking in a very, very measured way. They're scanning the horizon and they're trying to walk a very narrow uh, path between the United States and, uh, and other uh, powers. But yes, I think the Ukraine war is uh, very, very important in this respect because it shows essentially the abandonment uh, and, the, and the wastage and the exploitation uh, of a country as a proxy in forwarding uh, you know, U.S. imperial goals. And one of the elements at the real basis of all of this is these are arms laundering operations. When you create a uh, Pacific NATO, when you create a Middle East NATO, what you're doing in terms of the policy of the United States is you are uh, creating channels for the sale of weapons. And what's on the other side of this that the United States just does not seem to comprehend is the real threat to the United States is the cooperating elements, the cooperation between those that it considers to be quote unquote enemies. What enabled Venezuela to succeed up to this point and now to start to thrive is it entered into joint ventures with Iran. It, in, it, it entered into joint ventures with Russia. It entered into joint ventures with China. And so they are supporting each other and they are finding strength in numbers instead of trying to confront their threats as individuals. Yes, that's absolutely correct. I mean, the empire has always used the divide and conquer strategy. And this is codified, you know, literally down to the, you know, microeconomic level as the, an ideology of individuality. You know, this is individualism. Individualism or economic individualism was just a euphemism for capitalism. But to the extent that they can prevent solidarity, they can have their way. The, the way that a predator can have its way with a flock or a herd of, uh, you know, prey animals to the extent that uh, the prey can consolidate and uh, act together, uh, then they can resist. And this is the real threat. The real threat is that these methods of divide and conquer, of ideological foundational individualism uh, are not working anymore. And so then the, uh, the next escalation is, you know, this massive information warfare and delegitimation program against all the countries that pose some kind of uh, putative threat uh, to the rules-based international order, which is nothing of the sort. 
Interesting part of the, this uh, uh, article, it says, in short, although the United States remains the most powerful actor in Asia, uh, I would argue that may not be so anymore, it needs the, re- the, the support of key partners, partners such as Japan and South Korea to buttress the re- rules-based order again. I think J- Japan and, and South Korea need to look at Ukraine and see what happens to key partners. They need to look at the people in Holland right now. They need to look at Germany where they're saying, yeah, it's going to be a little cold this winter and food might be a little hard to come by. Other than that, life's going to be great. I think Japan and South Korea need to look at key partners and allies of the United States and see what happens to the United States when it sees difficult times. And there's a key partner and ally there to be, uh, shall we say, fed to the sharks. Yes, absolutely. Right. I mean, if you are a partner with, um, uh, you know, a slaughterhouse owner, you know, then <laughs> you have to wonder you know, which direction you're headed and, you know, what your future is. But you're absolutely correct. Um, they, the South Korea, if it were a clear-headed uh, and rational and clear-thinking uh, government, it would not be going down this road, just as the Moon Jae-in government resisted it uh, by every means possible. But the current Korean government is uh, led by Yoon Seok-yeol. Yoon Seok-yeol uh, comes from the extreme right conservative faction, which essentially is a government of Japanese collaborators. After 1945, the U.S., uh, in order to prevent the rise of socialism in Korea and to dismantle the Korean People's Republic, which is a socialist, uh, a socialist, uh, democratically elected uh, socialist uh, republic, uh, what they did was they took all the Japanese collaborators, I'm talking about the police, the judges, the military, the, you know, the, all the instruments of, of repression uh, who were Japanese collaborators. And they put this quizzling Japanese collaborator class in Korea back into power, and they have maintained uh, considerable strength uh, over the decades. And now they are back with uh, Yoon Seok-yeol and his administration, and they want to build or reconstitute uh, very, very strong relations with Japan as part of a U.S.-Japan-Korea trilateral alliance, essentially, that the Koreans and the Japanese will be quizzlings to U.S. imperial designs in Northeast Asia. Now, will the Korean people go for it? That remains to be seen. Yoon Seok-yeol is currently the most unpopular Korean president in uh, Korean history uh, at, you know, at, for his length of uh, service. This article says improving Japanese-South Korean relations will ultimately require dealing with political sensitivities related to history going back to World War II. Can they do that? Are these interests strong enough to overcome that history? We have just about a minute. You know, I think the political force will be applied. But remember, history is a heavy burden in South Korea. 1592, the Japanese started enslaving Koreans. In 1894, the Japanese gang-raped and set the Korean uh, empress, the queen, on fire. Uh, in 19, uh, from 1910 to 1945, millions of Koreans were enslaved, including 
uh, hundreds of thousands of women uh, enslaved into sexual slavery. And so this is, uh, you know, this kind of history is not resolved. And the South Koreans are, are not in any mind to let this pass, regardless of how much the U.S. would like to broker this shallow shotgun wedding in order to serve their imperial designs in Northeast Asia. We've been talking with K.J. No. He's an activist, writer, and teacher. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. The issue of boycott, divestment, and sanctions legality in the U.S. will soon come before the Supreme Court. Also, the U.S. is working to form an anti-Iran bloc in the Middle East. Joining us now to discuss this, we have Robert Fantina. He's a journalist, an author, and Palestine activist. Robert, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Uh, before we get going, I understand you have a book out. What's your latest book and where can people find it? The latest book is called Settler Colonialism in Palestine and Kashmir. It compares the situations in those countries by the apartheid regime of uh, Israel on Palestine and the brutal regime of India on Kashmir. It's available uh, any online book, books or Amazon, anywhere else. The right to boycott is likely headed to the U.S. Supreme Court after a court of appeals upheld an Arkansas law restricting contractors from boycotting Israel. With major implications for freedom of speech in the U.S., it is worth reexamining the historical use of boycott as a tool of resistance by anti-imperialists and anti-colonialist grassroots movements for justice and the case of the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement called for by Palestinians. And this is, will the U.S. Supreme Court make it illegal to boycott Israel found in Middle East? I, your thoughts, Robert Fantino. Uh, it's very possible, unfortunately. We've seen what the, uh, what the Supreme Court has done recently in overturning Roe v. Wade after 50 years of precedent. Um, Justice Thomas has said that it's also going to be necessary to uh, reevaluate uh, same-sex marriage uh, and, and other, other established policies in the United States. Now, boycotting, as you mentioned, has long been a tool, a peaceful tool used by human rights organizations to fight uh, imperial and colonial uh, regimes and to oppose them in a, in a peaceful and very effective way. So the fact that the Supreme Court may restrict boycotting in the United States will, it, it just sets up a very dangerous precedent. It removes a key component of free speech and it will, the fact that the U.S. has ceased to be a democracy long ago is only uh, this one's going to reinforce that. Uh, and it, it's just, it's frightening to think that this may happen. You know, Robert, one of the things that I've noticed over time, and it, I think this is true, particularly with conservatives in this country, they have a tendency to overplay their hand. And they they seem to forget that the country isn't nearly as conservative as they think it is. And the country isn't nearly as liberal as a lot of on the left believe that it is. And so a move such as this, I think, would 
probably do the movement a lot. It would serve them a lot better because of the outrage and the reaction to something like this, I believe, would really further the cause than stifle the cause. Well, when something like this, something so so blatant, such a blatant uh, restriction of, of a free speech by so many people who believe in human rights, this isn't going to make the BDS movement go away. It is, as you say, going to strengthen it. It's going to make uh, people who support human rights so Palestinians look for other means of uh, making their displeasure with the apartheid Israel regime and U.S. support for it known. Uh, this is going to be, it will open a can of worms, certainly. Uh, it, will, it will do damage in the short term, but in the long term, people are going to fight this and, and will come up with uh, a, a new method, whatever that might be, to continue to, to boycott, divest, and sanction Israel. I don't even know that it would damage the movement in the short term. If the Supreme Court were to make boycotting illegal, I think the I think the the overnight response would be overwhelming and and violent. I think there are many people who would say, "Well, this doesn't apply to me. I don't care." Uh, same way with the the reversing Roe v. Wade. I thought there would be more of a reaction to it than there was. I thought there'd be demonstrations in the streets. That didn't happen. Certainly, people uh, are opposed to this Supreme Court decision, and they are uh, making that known. But there hasn't been the, the, uh, the action, the activism that I thought uh, was very possible when it was expected that this was going to be, this was going to be overturned. Well, here's the, here's the other side of it, Robert. So right now, the United States government officially has a BDF sanctions movement going against Russia and against um, Syria and against uh, Venezuela and any number of countries that they're sanctioning. Well, what? This would say is if my state, if my whatever doesn't like the BDS, the sanctions movement that you have, then I can not do business with you, whatever the case may be. Well, that opens the door for anyone. If you're if right now, if I got a business and you're sanctioning Russia, I can say, you know, I just don't want to hire you. I don't want to do business with you. Why? Specifically because you're sanctioning Russia or Syria or whatever. It opens the door that a door that they may not want opened. That's a very good point. By saying that people can't boycott Israel and that businesses uh, can't do biz- can't can't transact business with uh, parties who do, with individuals who do boycott Israel, then where does it stop? The U.S., as you said, is boycotting and sanctioning Russia. If I have uh, a restaurant, can I say that I won't serve Russian or that I will serve Russian or, or whatever? But it just opens up a. Uh, it opens up a Pandora's box of problems and issues, the basic one of which is it's, it's stifling free speech in a country that supposedly prizes free speech. Middle East Eye has a piece, Why the New West Asia Quad Spells More Trouble for the Middle East. The new alliance will be a means to reinforce the autocratic leadership in the UAE and Saudi Arabia and provide a pass for the uh, ethnocratic governments of India and Israel. I think some of this falls directly in the purview of, of your book, Robert Fantina. Yes, it does very directly. Uh, India and Israel are both uh, nations that 
have very nationalistic attitudes. Uh, Israel is its Zionist and Jewish identity. India is Hindu identity. And anyone else is not entitled to the same rights in those countries as um, Jews in Israel and Hindus in India. The fact the United States is uh, formed this new a block with those countries and the UAE only shows, again, U.S. hypocrisy in, in it, it's always proclaiming that it supports human rights and individual freedom. And yet it's, you, it's aligning with two countries, very, very strongly aligning with two countries and bringing those two countries together that are very repressive and very racist. Well, the other thing is, it seems that the U.S. now is going around the world saying we've got to have a, a NATO and NATO is destabilizing Europe. Now it's we've got to have an Asian version of NATO to confront China and they're destabilizing, destabilizing the Pacific. Now it's, oh, we got to have a West Asian quad. Before you know it, is it going to be a North Asian, South Asian, East, West? You know what I mean? It's like the U.S. now is weaker than they were in that other countries are growing more powerful. So now they're just going around the world trying to get a bunch of schmucks together to say we're going to join with the U.S. to confront whoever the U.S. is confronting now. It's starting to become farcical to some extent if it weren't so dangerous, Robert. Yes, it's the, the U.S. is trying to make these alliances to combat its various enemies around the world, or its, its invented enemies, uh, Russia, Iran, China. Uh, and these enemies are mainly countries that are growing in economic strength, China certainly, and are, are challenging U.S. power, economic power around the world. U.S. will not have that. U.S. government will not allow any other country to be stronger economically or militarily than it is because it wants to run the whole world. So by creating these these informal blocks, uh, the current one, uh, India, Israel, of UAE and the U.S., and others, as you said, to combat uh, and oppose its invented enemies, it, it is becoming almost comical. All these, these countries are uh, gathering together in some kind of informal and haphazard way uh, to combine their military strength or economic strength to simply oppose countries that the United States doesn't like. And the United States often doesn't like them because they're too democratic and they don't uh, toe the U.S. party line. So last Thursday, Biden visited the Middle East. He sat there with Israeli Prime Minister Lapid and they participated in a virtual summit with uh, Modi from India and Bin Zayed from the UAE. And they released this joint statement talking about their interest in Challenge, confronting the challenges of the world with a focus on water, energy, transportation, space, health, and food security. It doesn't sound like they're really working in the best interest of the have-nots. It sounds more like they're investing in securing the future for the elite. And that's typical with the U.S. Even in the, in the, within the borders of the United States, there's a huge impoverished population and uh, much smaller, very wealthy population, and never the twain will meet. Nothing is done to help the, the poor in the United States, so the U.S. isn't interested in helping the poor globally either. I also think it's, it's, it's appalling that Biden would sit down with Mode and Lapid, two savage dictators, two people responsible for, two genocidal dictators, 
and sit down and have a chat with them. It is, it's beyond appalling. You know, the thing to me, it's actually, to me, it's not appalling if, and I'll be honest, if you do what Russia and China does, if you say, look, if you want business, we'll do business with you. We're not going to mess with your internal, well, you may do things we don't like, but we're going to do business. If you say that, you can do business with anyone. But when you play this human rights game that the U.S. plays and the Biden team plays, we're out to help everybody and puppies and things of that nature, then it exposes your hypocrisy. Your thoughts? Absolutely. And that's exactly what, what this is doing. Biden and U.S presence before him and other government officials talk about how the U.S. is a beacon of peace and freedom and democracy. They want to spread democracy around the world. And everyone has the right to self-determination. Well, it's everybody except for the Palestinians and the Yemenis and the uh, Kashmiris and the uh, Syrians. It's very selective. And as you said, they sit down with these, these horrible leaders, these, these people who just are, are guilty of, of war crimes and crimes against humanity. And on the, at the same time, they're saying we support democracy. It's complete, complete hypocrisy, but it's very typical of the United States. So that's maybe it's not appalling because it is so typical of the United States. And if you look at American domestic politics, you have APAC-affiliated organizations that are going into urban centers and undermining the democracy in those places by pouring money into candidates' campaigns that APAC believes to be anti-Zionist. For after Trump was elected for years, Congress talked about how Russia had uh, tried to influence U.S. elections. Israel tries successfully to influence U.S. elections every year and has for decades through APAC and other, other uh, lobby groups and organizations. As you said, they, they pour millions of dollars into the campaigns of candidates who they think will support Iran or will support Israel and will do what Israel wants. And yet that's perfectly legal. If uh, Russia attempts to influence U.S. elections, it's a horrible thing. But Israel does it all the time, right out in front in public, and no one says a word. We've been talking with Robert Fantina. He's a journalist and Palestinian activist and author. You're listening to The Critical Hour on the Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. Italy is the latest victim of sanctions blowback as Mario Draghi struggles to maintain power. Also, Germany's prime minister says the sanctions will remain even after a diplomatic solution is reached. Joining us now to discuss this and more, we have Dan Lazar. He's an investigative journalist and author. Dan, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Uh, Glad to be here. Let's start here. 
You know, the um, the the, uh, uh, the gas to Nord Stream 1 has been cut off for 10 days starting either the 10th or 11th of July for repairs by Gazprom. Um, the, uh, the Germans have had some concern that the gas flow may never come back on. And uh, RT's reporting, along with uh, Reuters, Russian energy giant Gazprom has declared force majeure on gas supplies to at least one major EU customer starting July 14th, reporters report. On Monday, citing a company letter it has seen, according to the document, Gazprom could not fulfill its supply obligations due to extraordinary circumstances outside its control. Uh Uh-oh, Dan Lazar. Well, yeah, it seems as if the crunch is approaching. Um, I mean, uh, suddenly uh, European countries are faced with the prospect of a cessation of Russian gas supplies. There have been threats, there have been promises, there have been all kinds of warnings, but now it looks as if the moment is upon us. And uh, it's an extremely grim prospect that can throw the entire continent into a deep recession uh, with global consequences. So, I mean, it's just another example of how these, not only have the sanctions backfired, but the entire NATO strategy has backfired. And I'm referring to the, the, to the, the thoughtless, aimless, pointless expansion to the East without any thought given to the security consequences for Russia or, or, and without any thought somehow even deserved to be given to the security consequences for Russia. One of the things that I find very interesting in this is the business nature of it all, that, you know, we're so focused on the military side of this, the military intervention in Ukraine. And and now here you have uh, Russia turning to contracts and, and, and saying, well, this is really due to an act of God, and I'm not going to uh, send missiles. I'm just going to cut off your gas. And I'm turning to my contracts that are a clause in my contract that's enabling me to do that. Please forgive me, but contractually, Article 2, Section 3, Paragraph 4 says, this is what I'm going to do, and so this is what I'm going to do. Yeah, I, I mean, everyone is very, was very mad. Everyone was very mad at Russia for wanting, wanting to deliver gas via Nord Stream 2. <laughs> now they're very mad at Russia for cutting off gas via, via Nord, Nord Stream, Stream 1. 1. <laughs> so, so, so Russia, Russia is condemned for selling gas and for not selling gas. I mean, it makes no sense. The only, the only thing that makes sense to me is that, is that the U.S. has wanted to, to, to take German, take uh, Europe off Russian gas in order f- so that Europe would buy gas from Texas and from a U.S. client state like Qatar. That's the only thing. And, and it, it is at, at enormous cost to the Europeans. But the, the headless horseman that is the European Union doesn't seem to be capable of, uh, of, of recognizing that. But Dan, let me ask you this. Because right now, uh, I'm reading this, according to publication, Germany's largest steelmaker, Thyssen Group, and the world's largest chemicals company, BASF, have both warned that without sufficient natural gas supplies, their factories could be forced to idle or shut down completely. Um, Here's the other part of it. What if it isn't what the U.S. wanted? What if it's, as we have all speculated many times, they didn't have a plan? 
They, they, were, they had people at the Fed saying, whatever you do, don't cut Russia off from SWIFT. Don't do that. Don't cut the gas. Don't do this. Don't do that. And then when the war started, they just lost their mind and said, sanctions, sanctions, everything, sanctions. Oh, this is going to be great. And they didn't have a plan. And they had no thought of what was going to happen in the long run. These people are so incompetent. I'm starting to believe, Dan, that this is all happenstance. They did these things. And now they're scratching their heads saying, oh, what, what, what do we do now? We've got to stay tough and hold on as everything collapses around them. Dan. I think they had a plan, but it was their arrogance that blinded them to the realities. They thought that, you know, the Biden administration thought that they could just dictate. Uh, Because I remember Biden standing in the Rose Garden with Olaf Schultz and they asked Biden about Nord Stream 2. And he said, oh, no, that's not going to happen. And they said, well, Joe, how how are you going to prevent it? Trust me, it's not going to happen. It was just that total foolishness based on arrogance. And now what they're seeing is folks aren't scared. Dan. Yes, I, I, I agree with, uh, with, uh, with uh, Dr. Leon. Uh, I mean, I think that the, I think just because they're incompetent did, doesn't mean <laughs> they didn't have a plan. I, right. I think That's they had, it. That's I think, it. I think they, had, they had an incompetent plan. I mean, <laughs> the, their go. plan their plan since the late 1990s, when Zbig Brzezinski wrote his famous book, The Grand Chessboard, has been to break up, isolate, diminish, you know, reduce Russia. That has been their plan all along. And and I think that 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 you know that that cutting off Russia from the, the gas business, closing off its exports, were all, you know, and and somehow bringing Germany closer to the United States and the cutter. That, that was all part of the plan. It just hasn't worked. I mean, it was an incredibly ill-conceived plan, only a plan which a, a grossly overextended, overextended both military and intellectual terms, empire could conceive of. And so now it finds itself in deep, deep trouble, and there's no way out. And, and Garland, I, I, let me, I want to quote a brilliant, brilliant African-American philosopher named Mike Tyson, who said, everybody can fight until they get punched in the face. And now you're finding the United States getting punched in the face. There's a, uh, there's a, a Mexican saying, which is, uh, you want to make God laugh, tell him about your plans. Um, <laughs> and, the, uh, and, the, uh, and this is, this, this is the case. I mean, I mean uh, they didn't count on Russia fighting back. They didn't count on the on, on on how Europe would respond when it's caught in between, and they didn't they, and they didn't reckon reckon with the the cost of the global economy. And now we know it's severe. It's really severe. Um, and uh, and by, you know, I mean Biden's trip to the Middle East was an attempt to to get himself out of this hole he's dug for himself uh, by persuading. Uh, Saudi Arabia to to step up oil production, but it flopped. Saudi Arabia said no. They humiliated Biden, and they um and uh, as a result, gas immediately uh, oil immediately spiked three point six percent this morning. So you know, so uh, it's you know the the administration is it, the level of incompetence is extraordinary, but this is what happens when you have an overextended. Uh, 
um, empire. And, and, just, and, and that, that thinks that just by declaring America is back will somehow make it true. Um, there's also a report, there's a report going out now that the German, and I've seen it everywhere online, that the German interior minister has said, we expect violent protests due to high energy prices. Um, I personally think he has a fairly firm grasp of the obvious. Um, but now we've got uh, another TASS article, EU to keep sanctions if peace in Ukraine signed on Russia's terms. And I think that's the bottom line, and, and that is that the United States planned, as Russia said before this, they have a plan to sanction us. And it doesn't matter what happens. They're going to make an excuse. They'll just say we used weapons of mass destruction or painted Novichok on a doorknob or whatever the case may be. Boom, there's the sanctions. Because now they're saying, well, even if this thing ends in diplomacy, we got to keep the sanctions on. It's interesting that Olaf Schultz is the one saying that because he ain't going to be around when and if these sanctions ever ever uh, lift. He's not going to be around as the leader of um, of of any country. Mario Draghi, he's got, you know, one foot in the political grave and the other on a patch of wet leaves. It looks like that um, Europe is done economically. Europe, politically, there'll be upheaval and uh, the people, people are going to burn that place down. Maybe, hopefully not literally, but it's possible, Dan. Well, I, I think also you forgot Joe Biden. Oh, he's yeah. in deep, deep trouble as well. I mean, I mean, essentially, these, these political leaders are on their way out. Um, and, uh, and Boris Johnson, of course. And, uh, and, and therefore, uh, we're facing a, an upheaval at all levels the top, the bottom, and everything in between. Uh, no, yes, I mean, I, mean, I mean, European workers will be very upset to find themselves out of a job because of a war which NATO really caused. Uh, and, you know, and, and a war which, you know, which may not be containable. And then you have the U.S. You know, acting in an ever more provocative fashion in the uh, Western Pacific, and you have, you know, rumblings of something happening in the Persian Gulf. So, you know, so, so we could really, you know, crunch time is approaching. We could really be on the edge of a precipice here. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I, no, one predicts the, no one can predict the future, least of all myself. Nonetheless, I think that there's something big maybe around the corner. And following along with Schultz's comments, he says, we knew it from the start that we will potentially have to keep these sanctions for a long time. And it is also clear that not a single one of these sanctions will be withdrawn in case of peace dictated by Russia. Well, I thought, first of all, to the victor goes the spoils. And what this also says to me is, and this is part of what Garland was saying, the war had nothing to do with this, which means the end of the war has nothing to do with this. So what's the incentive for Russia to do anything that anybody would perceive to be as reasonable? There really isn't any incentive. Uh, and I think that it's clear that, that, um, that the Ukraine is faltering on the battlefield. And it looks like the Zelensky regime may be coming apart. I'm just thinking about his, his, his firing of the, S, the spy agency called the SBU and his chief prosecutor on grounds of treason, uh, which is very serious, obviously. Um, and so, uh, and there's the, uh, and 
battlefield resistance seems to be declining. So it's very possible. Again, I don't want to get you know over my ski tips, but it's very possible we could see um, Ukraine beginning to falter in a really serious way on the battlefield. At which point the the West will face NATO will face a a, a serious problem. Yeah, I think you are right. Um, I think they are faltering. Um, just so you'll know, I understand that um, uh, the Ukraine now, the leadership is trying to walk back those dismissals by Z- Zelensky. Again, it shows um, instability. Hey, that you're fired. Oh, no, you're not fired. Oh, we don't know if you're fired. Dan Lazar is an investigative journalist, author of many great books. You can find them online wherever books are sold. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. The pink tide in Latin America is surging as more left-leaning leaders are projected to take power. Also, Evo Morales discusses the U.K.'s role in the coup that ousted him. Joining us to discuss this and more, we have Ajamu Baraka. He's a former vice presidential candidate for the Green Party. Ajamu, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Glad to be here. Thank you. In, this is a great article. It's in consortiumnews.com. It's titled, Evo Morales, UK Role in Coup That Ousted Him um, by Matt Kennard. And at one point, Matt says, The British Foreign Office released 30 pages of documents about programs run by its embassy in Bolivia. These showed it appeared to have paid an Oxford-based company to optimize exploitation of Bolivia's lithium deposits in the month after Morales fled the country. It also showed the U.K. embassy in La Paz acted as a strategic partner to the coup regime and organized, again, an international mining event in Bolivia four months after the democracy was overthrown. Kind of sounds like they wanted that lithium. Your thoughts, Ajamu Baraka? Well, thank you. Um, is nothing really that surprising. Uh, what those documents reveal is what uh, uh, many people have uh, talked about and what we all understood to be the real objective of, of, of UK and US uh, policy in Bolivia which of course is related to their, their natural resources and uh, the lithium uh, in particular. So this is uh, is par for the course. Uh, it's good though that, that this is coming out. Uh, it, it confirms uh, the, the lack of respect for democracy on the part of these powerful Northern nations. Um, and it helps to um, solidify the idea or the, the analysis of many people in the global South, and in, in, in particular in, in Latin America, uh, that they can expect uh, no support for any form of democracy uh, in their countries, especially if uh, they're building a democracy that is really grounded in the sovereignty of the people and the aspirations for the people to control their own natural resources. So this is a significant um, and it shows the, the, the extent to which these nations go, uh, these uh, imperial, Western imperialist nations will go uh, to try to maintain uh, their control and their access to uh, valuable uh, resources that, that they want to have their hands on. 
Morales said that when he came to government in 2006, Bolivia was the last country in South America in terms of economic and development indicators. Over the next 13 years, his government experienced its most stable period since its declared independence. What do you say now uh, that Morales is back in Bolivia uh, about the future uh, for the country? Well, I mean, the, what's, what's unfolding in, in Bolivia is part of uh, I, I know what we're going to talk about in a moment, and that is the um, reconstituting of these various states in Latin America uh, that are committed to uh, shifting the balance of power toward the people. Uh, the situation in Bolivia is now is I mean a very different situation today, in that the the people themselves rose up, uh, defended their process, uh, brought into into government another progressive uh, government, uh, and that, that allowed uh, uh, Morales to be able to come back home. So this momentum that we see in um, in Bolivia is a momentum that we see across the, the Latin American continent. And it, it bodes well, but it's still a very dangerous situation we have in Latin America. But it's very good that the people are looking at what happened in Bolivia in particular, left forces in the U.S. that, uh, you know, did not come out in opposition uh, to the coup in that country because of some of the alleged mistakes that uh, Morales and his government made in Bolivia. Now I think they have uh, egg on their faces. In uh, Orinoco Tribune, uh, Roger Harris has a great article, and the article is entitled The Pink Tide Surges in Latin America. He writes, while the political balance between progressive and reactionary states south of the Rio Grande continues to tip to the left, even the corporate press pronounced Biden's June Summit of the Americas meeting in Los Angeles a flop. Your thoughts? Well, Roger is very correct. Um, you know, I don't really like using that that term pink tide, but it it, it it conveys a certain kind of, of, of image and understanding of what was developing uh, in the region with uh, various social social democratic uh, governments and movements. Uh, but I predicted uh, some years, uh, some a few years ago, that when there was going to be a return of these uh, progressive movements, uh, that it could no longer be pink. That what we will see would be a, a much deeper red, if you will, because. It was quite clear that the neoliberal uh, governments that uh, attempted to take uh, power after they pushed out some of these progressive governments had nothing to offer uh, to the people uh, because the, the, the logic of, of the neoliberal accumulation process uh, was exhausted. Um, and the only way that these governments were going to be able to maintain themselves was through uh, force and violence. Uh, but the the, the ability to impose that on uh, the people in their various countries uh, have been somewhat constrained. So uh, my thought is that basically what we're seeing is a, a monumental shift in power uh, in the region. But again, I stress, it's still a very dangerous situation because the, uh, the, the right wing in, in, in Latin America, uh, with its intimate ties to the right wing in the U.S., uh, they're not going to uh, go quietly. They, they are not going to respect democratic processes. And so we expect to see more attempts to undermine uh, these projects uh, throughout the region. As we look at these shifts in government now in reaction to neoliberalism, 
one of the things that I think is different now than uh, earlier on in these countries are the coalitions that these countries are forming, not only amongst themselves within the global south, but they're now teaming with China, they're teaming with Russia, they're teaming with Iran. And so they, uh, these countries are now uniting and coalescing around positions of, of interest, a collective interest, and seeing, of course, the United States as their uh, fun- fundamental enemy. But so despite, as you, we've talked about on this show before, uh, the, the militarism is not a positive sign, but the uh, uh, collaborative efforts that they're showing, I think, are a difference now than they have been in the past. Well, you know, it was always a part of the of the agenda of the progressive governments in in uh, Latin America was to, in fact, as you said, to strengthen their 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 relationships, uh, to create structures that would allow more more cooperation uh, among them. And we, we've seen some of those structures like uh, ALBA uh, serve that purpose. We've seen the strengthening of the of the community of Latin American and Caribbean states, for example. Uh, these are all structures that serve not only as alternatives to the uh, the institutions or structures of the globe, of, of the of the northern uh, uh, hegemon, the U.S., but they serve as uh, uh, structures that will allow more cooperation among states. But also, uh, it, 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 these are structures that have also uh, components that uh, allow for civil society, for social movements to also participate in. So we see a, a two-level sort of struggle taking place, uh, more cooperation among states uh, and more cooperation, communication, um, uh, coordination among the social movements in Latin America. So this is something that together is creating a, a, a momentum that is quite uh, frankly uh, irreversible in, in, the, in our region. And it's allowed, allowed for the social movements to raise certain issues like um, the ongoing militarization coming from the global hegemon in, in, in the north um, and calling for uh, uh, support for the CELAC, uh, a declaration to make uh, Latin America and the Caribbean a zone of peace. In his article, U.S.-led imperialism is the world's leading purveyor of, cha- of chaos, Danny Haifong writes... I can never find it. Danny Haifong writes, to say that the West currently led by the dictates of imperialism is in trouble would be an understatement. The Western capitalist axis of domination is responsible for most of the world's crisis. The crisis of legitimacy extends from UK to Japan and U.S. imperialism is involved in every new catastrophe. But by the looks of things, U.S. imperialism is in serious trouble. Your thoughts? I added the last part, Ajamu. What you added is is, is absolutely correct. It it, it is in in trouble. Um, People are beginning to have a a clear sense of focus, uh, and they are understanding that what we say in the Black Alliance for Peace, that the main, um, uh, the primary contradiction we're facing on on the planet today is uh, the people versus the uh, U.S., EU, NATO, axis of domination. But those forces have clearly exposed themselves. Um, they have uh, demonstrated that they are prepared to do whatever is necessary to maintain their grip on, on global power. Um, and in doing that, 
They have stripped away all of the pre pretenses to any kind of commitment to democracy, human rights, or any of that stuff they use for so-called South, uh, South power. So this is the, so it's quite clear what the uh, terms of struggle uh, are. And people are recognizing that until we are able to shift power away from the U.S. Uh, and these northern uh, states, uh, all of us uh, are still threatened uh, by these forces that have uh, demonstrated that they're prepared to blow the world up uh, before they loosen their grip on uh, white world, white world uh, super- supremacy. And uh, Danny Haifong turns to the assassination of uh, Shinzo Abe as a indicator about this shift in in structure and this this shift away from imperialism do you see abe's assassination as an indication of such well a, 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 a small indicator i think that uh, what is more uh, important is for people to understand that the 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 policy of the us um and that leads the western world is a policy of domination uh, Abe and what is happening in, J- in Japan is important because we see the consolidation of right-wing forces in Japan uh, that, that are quite uh, eager to join the U.S. in trying to undermine the uh, the power of the Chinese uh, in their region. But we have to also look at some very dangerous developments. The, the fact that the uh, U.S. administration, the Biden administration, gave a green light uh, to uh, Israel, basically, to attack Iran um, was I think very very troubling because it, it we know that they have been biting they have been uh, prepared to to make that attack but there was some constraints being imposed on them from the U.S. administrations that seems to be a a, a very important and dangerous change in and U.S. policies and the ongoing wars in in Iran the the abandonment of the people in Afghanistan um, you know. The, the, the shifts are, are, are taking place. We see that there are upheavals across the planet to uh, the consequences of the Ukraine war. So there are other indicators that, sh- that demonstrate um, that while these forces are attempted to consolidate themselves to maintain their power, there are also the, the counter forces coming from the people. Uh, they're taking advantage of, of these contradictions that uh, the, the northern countries, the northern capitalist countries are unable to resolve. Thank you very much. We've been talking with Ajamu Barak, a former vice presidential candidate for the Green Party and an active member of Black Alliance for Peace. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We're back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. China is working to address a future that may include total decoupling from the West. Also, the U.S. is ramping up provocations in the area of the South China Sea. Joining us now to discuss this and more, we have Dr. Ken Hammond. He's a professor of East Asian and Global History at the New Mexico State University. Dr. Hammond, welcome back to The Critical Hour. 
Delighted to be here. This is an interesting article. Building the new three rings, China's choice in the face of possible complete decoupling. And they say in the future, China will have to promote a new global system, a three ring international system that will guarantee China's national security and development. Your thoughts, Dr. Hammond? Well, that's, uh, you're quite right. This was a fascinating article, and I think that it's a, a very interesting kind of, in, in some ways, a reworking of, uh, you know, Mao Zedong's ideas about uh, the three worlds, you know, this, this idea of the advanced capitalist world, the socialist camp, and then the developing world, which, you know, animated a lot of international discussion uh, back in the, in the 60s and the 70s in that period. And, uh, you know, this new iteration, this new idea of building the three rings, it recasts that, it reconceptualizes that in a more geopolitical way, but it still has some of the same implications in that, you know, the first ring is basically China, Central Asia, and the Middle East, an area that historically, of course, was connected by the ancient Silk Road systems and today is the core of uh, the Belt and Road Initiative. Then the larger second ring, which is basically the rest of Asia, Africa, Latin America. And then finally, that third ring, which is what today I think we can start to think of as the old industrial core. You know, the United States, uh, Western Europe, that part of the world, which now uh, is, is, has become a much more defensive uh, kind of kind of zone, a zone that is trying to hang on to its its global dominance, but is facing significant challenges in in that. And the other aspect that that permeates this article, which I think also is is very good, is the way that uh, that the author kind of explains the the linkages, the the real conceptual linkages between the the, the public discourse about globalization and how what that's really meant has been. The globalization of capital, the globalization of, you know, of Atlantic-centered uh, hegemony, uh, the power of the United States in the post-World War II period, at the core of the global capitalist system, that's a globalization. But what we're talking about now, this idea of the three rings, is really a, it's a, a different kind of globalization. It's a globalization that that's truly based upon you know, trying to construct systems that address the needs of the vast majority of people rather than just pulling resources and profits to the to the to the capitalist core. You know, it's interesting that this article speaks about things in terms of the the three layers, because you've got the Trilateral Commission, which, you know, was formed, I want to say, in the early 70s uh, and is supposed to encompass J- Japan uh, uh, Western Europe and North America. So just again, a, a similarity in, in terms of these three rings and, and the trilateral uh, uh, commission. Uh, but also this whole, whole idea about uh, the, the other one of the other elements of this article is talking about Russia's military operation against the Ukraine and that this is the ensuing the full-scale confrontation between the, the West and Russia. So injecting that into this analysis is important as well. Absolutely. And I think that, that this gets down to, to the, the sort of uh, the motivation for, for the elaboration of this new, uh, this new model or this new vision, um, which is this, this, this question of decoupling, you know, the idea that um, one of the ways in which the United States seems to be trying to deal 
with the the deep structural transformations that are taking place on on the planet is to try to you know to demonize china to try to isolate china to try to in some way slow down or or perhaps even totally block china's uh, development uh, and and you know one way to do that or one way that the Americans are are trying to do that is this concept of decoupling of trying to to disconnect China from the the global system that the United States has dominated for so long and you know the the irony of that of course is that what China is doing uh, in collaboration with with other countries other peoples all around the world is as this article elaborates you know, uh, designing and, and developing and, and working collaboratively, cooperatively with, with these other countries and peoples to create a, a different uh, uh, order, a different network, a different set of, of, uh, of couplings, if you will, of connections between countries. So this idea of decoupling, of trying to stop China's rise by cutting it off from American technologies and things like that, Actually, it's kind of the United States shooting itself in the foot once again um, by by isolating itself. They think that they're isolating China, but what they're really doing is is isolating themselves. And this this what we see with NATO expansion in Europe and and now the conflict in uh, in Ukraine and the way that the world has responded to that has not been as American propaganda continually tries to tell us that, oh, all the other nations of the world have lined up with the U.S. to oppose Russian aggression, but in fact has been the refusal of the majority of people on the planet, the countries that contain the majority of people on the planet, to buy into the American narrative, to buy into the American political uh, agenda here and military agenda here, to refuse to go along with the United, you know, these U.N. resolutions, that uh, that the United States has put forward. And so we see that there is a deep, deep shift that's taking place. But it's not one that's isolating Russia and China. It's one in which the United States ultimately is, is self-isolating. It's cutting itself off. So decoupling, that may be a real thing, but it's not going to be something that means the end of China's development. It's going to be something that's going to, in some ways, facilitate the elaboration, the development, uh, the fulfillment of this vision uh, of of the new, you know, sort of three-ring order. You know, Malcolm X used a very powerful uh, plantation metaphor that I think is applicable applicable here, where he said that if someone went to the house slaves and said, let's run away, they'd say, no, no, I'm living good, I'm warm, I'm inside the house, I got, you know, warm clothes, and no way, I'm eating good, not doing it. But he, talk, he went into detail about how much you know, the a living hell that the field slaves had. And he said, if somebody said, let's run away, the field slaves would say, any place is better than here. Let's go. Here's my point. When you say to the countries of Africa and Latin America that have been oppressed, that have been overthrown repeatedly by these uh, by the governments, right now there's an interesting article in Consortium News where Evo Morales is talking about how the UK was part of the coup in his in in in, in his country. Now that people in these countries look at Russia and China and they see the possibility of a new economic world order and they've been oppressed and had their any hope of democracy stolen from them time and again, I think they're saying any place is better than here. We want to see what this new order looks like. Your thoughts, Ken? 
Oh, I think that's exactly right. I think that people, you know, people for a long time around the world have have suffered under, you know, the global system dominated by the United States, which basically has treated them as sources of wealth, you know, the extraction of whether it's actual primary resources or just profits from, you know, different kinds of productive activities. Uh, you know, the wealth of the world has flowed to, you know, the United States and the Western European states, uh, you know, for, for a long time. That's that's coming to an end. People around the world are, are, you know, able to be developing their own economies, developing their own livelihoods. A lot of that now is being assisted by China. It's not that China's, you know, the new great, you know, welfare benefactor of the world, but China's rise helps to facilitate. Uh, the development of economies in many of the other parts of the world. And so people are no longer quite so intimidated by the United States. They're not quite so oppressed by the United States. And they have the vision of, of doing away with those exploitative relationships. And so seeing, you know, seeing what the United States is trying to do, trying to to weaken Russia, trying to hollow out the Russian economy, trying to expand the area of, of capital dominance through the expansion of NATO. They see that and they see that it's a faltering process. They see that, you know, there are these alternatives of development. There are these possibilities to enhance their own positions. And so, yeah, they're, they're starting to turn away. They're starting to say, you know what, we're not. We're not getting on the bus with you. In fact, we're not staying on the bus with you. We're getting off the bus with you. You know, and they're saying we're going to we're going to chart our own futures. We're going to take more responsibility for our own development and our own livelihoods. And I think, you know, that that's that's just a trend that's going to continue. And that, of course, is is what the United States is grappling so desperately to try to deal with. They want to maintain their dominance. They want to maintain their profitability. They want to maintain their power and their privileges. But the world is changing in ways that they cannot control in ways that are just deep, deep reconfigurations of global relationships. That makes them a little crazy. It makes them very dangerous. And we see that playing out uh, today. But people of the world are are changing their views. They're changing their attitude. And and that's what we see playing out. And that will be the long-term change that's going to reconfigure the world. In fact, they're getting off the bus and they're getting on the bullet train. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. in the uh, in this piece, they 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 describe I think what you're talking about as the South South cooperation, and the fact that now a lot of these countries have gone from just being sources of resources to now having much greater control over their economies, having much greater control over their politics as well. Because one of the things that the United States has been very adept at is not only the direct intervention, but also the softer power in terms of fomenting coups, installing leaders that will um, will 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 kowtow to the interests of the West. And now, even from a political perspective, this whole dynamic is shifting and the global South in terms of Central and South America is a perfect example of that. Sure. This idea of South-South cooperation, I think, is is really critical to this. The old imperialist systems and the neo-colonial systems that the United States has, has been at the heart of, you know, basically tried to operate as a kind of hub and spokes system where 
individual countries around the world, their primary relationships or the things that primarily determined their situations were their bilateral relationships with the United States. But now, increasingly, we see collaborations, alliances, things like the BRICS uh, uh, Association, uh, the ASEAN Association in Southeast Asia, you know, groups of countries uh, across the world relating to one another and trying to construct those relationships in ways that are external to the domination of the United States. So instead of that old, that old, you know, hub and spokes model, now we have a much more collaborative, a much more interactive relationship between the various countries and regions in the global south. Uh, And I think that that's, you know, that's also a very, very positive development. It's not that that's a done deal. It's not that that whole situation has been completely transformed yet. But that seems to be the trend. That seems to be the dynamic that's unfolding. And that empowers people around the world to, again, take greater control over their own development, their own livelihoods, their own futures. We've been talking with Dr. Ken Hammond. He's a professor of East Asian and Global History at New Mexico State University. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. The U.S. foreign policy establishment views the entire world as a chessboard and all nations are used as tools to maintain hegemony. Also, we discuss Ukraine through the lens of a proxy war with no exit strategy. Joining us to discuss this and more, we have Jim Cavanaugh. Jim's a writer at thepolemicists.net and Counterpunch. Jim, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thanks for having me. Over there on Consortium News, Brad Wolf writes, when every conflict or area of instability is perceived as a threat, the world becomes the enemy. Jim Cavanaugh, your thoughts? Yeah, well, his argument is really basically everything. If you've got a hammer, everything's a nail. And for the, for the war industry in this country, every problem in the world is a problem that has a military solution and is a crisis that requires some more bombs and missiles. And that is pretty much, you know, what the uh, the principle, the, the guiding principle of American foreign policy has been, that we can solve every problem with our military power. And it's been a pretty much a disaster, but not for the war industry, not for the, uh, pe- the companies and the people who make the weapons and who profit from it. And that's what it's been about for, uh, and obviously so for many years. We spent 20 years, uh, to defeat the Taliban in Afghanistan, and we got driven out by the Taliban. And, you know, that's the, we have the biggest military in the world, the most powerful military in the world, the most modern military in the world, maybe maybe not that now anymore, but we have the most expensive military in the world, and that's really the key. So, you know, this is uh, the, uh, uh, the context in which uh, we live. And, and also, you know, there's a... There are other things about the what what the United States is worried about overseas, uh, uh, and what they're what they're fighting for. But what's being said here, which is ultimately true, is that uh, this is the culture that we've been 
that the whole foreign policy establishment and the American people to a large degree in general know that we can solve problems, that all problems are solvable by our military force. Jim, Brad Wolf writes, as described to me, the military assesses threats across the globe, including such countries as China and Russia, then designs a military strategy to counter those threats, works with weapons manufacturers to design weapons to integrate into that strategy, then produces a budget based on that strategy. But part of this also is the United States isn't assessing threats. The United States is creating them. A lot of the fights that we as a country find ourselves engaged in are fights that we are starting because of our own misguided, warped sense of imperialism. This is what imperialists do. Well, the, what, the process he describes here is kind of perfect. It's the military who makes an assessment. And it's the military who then says, this is the weapons we need. And it's the military that then goes to the weapons designers and the, and then they go to the Congress or, or, the, or, the, or the president or the executive who then goes to the Congress, which never rejects it because it's the military. And that's what he says here. He says, right. uh, Congress, Democrats, or Republicans alike overwhelmingly then support the budget. After all, it's the military. So that, but but as you say, what that, because the military has to be making the argument in some way that it's doing that in support of some diplomatic or political goals. And usually is in some respect. But the point is that what happens is the United States, then its intervention, its action of the countries tends to be, we're going to provide you with military support. We're going to give you the, the weapons you need. We're going to, this is what happened in Ukraine. Look, Ukraine was an independent country. Russia wasn't trying to take it over. They had they, they there was there was a lot of uh, uh, discontent with in Ukraine about corruption in 2014. They could have had a coup, a revolution, a insurrection, whatever you want to call it. Put a new new government in. Now that was a that that's a very simplistic attitude, and the people of Eastern Ukraine weren't weren't with it so much. But my point is, what what happened was the the response to that is. The Americans are going to come in and build up NATO. <laughs> the Americans are going to come in and make you a make you a, essentially a, a forward base for NATO, and that's what happened. So that created other problems that then need more weapons to solve, and that's what that's that's the cycle we're in now, and it's extremely dangerous, and we're seeing the absolutely disastrous and horribly dangerous results of it. But my but my 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 point is looking at, for example, Iran weapons of mass destruction. That's a lie. Looking at Venezuela, Hugo Chavez or and and Nicolas Maduro, authoritarian dictators not elected through democratic process. That's a lie. The, the United. So since World War II, you know, we've been our whole basis of going into Vietnam was a lie, and we we start these problems, we foment these conflicts. And then we then claim that we're the ones that have to go in and looking at what's going on in Haiti. We're creating that problem. What we claim to be a reality in Haiti is a lie. Yeah, and that's where you do have to look at not just the military spending, but but what are the political goals here in these cases, you know? And the the goal of the first task of the United States, it the responsibility it feels and it has had since World War II in the world is to be the guarantor of the rule of the elites in various countries and to prevent any attempt 
of popular forces to take over the capital and social wealth of the countries, okay? So that's what they're doing in Venezuela, right? Iran, and it's very important that, I'm glad you brought up Iran, because Iran, the United States has taken on the role of being the guarantor of the Zionist project in the Middle East. And Iran is considered, you know, one of the remaining threats to that, and the one that's still recalcitrant about accepting the Zionist project. And I, you know, everybody has to be, and, and we have been, the United States as a country has committed itself to backing up Israel and anything it does in that, in that respect, and to eliminating any forces that might prevent Israel from having complete impunity to do what anything it wants. And that's what Iran represents to Israel. And I want to say that Iran is, is, a, is a theater right now that's, a, it, while all eyes are on Ukraine, there's a big danger of war and of a nuclear war in Iran because Israel wants to attack Iran. They're not going to, the, the JC, JCPOA isn't, isn't going to be revived. And if Israel does attack Iran, they will use nuclear weapons. I have no doubt about it. So, you know, this is a theater of war that's very dangerous and it's on the edge that we're not paying much attention to. But yes, you have to look at it's, it, it. This is a the process of, of imperialism is not just impelled by military spending. That's a that's a very big plus for it. And it's a very big motor of it. But there are political uh political impulses and political responsibilities. The United States feels it has to be the guarantor of the the, the possession of the material wealth of societies by elites rather than by the people. Um, the other thing I think that's important to look at now, and because, you know, one of the one of the issues, the issue here is how the U.S. sees the world and how the U.S. sees the world as this great chessboard in a battlefield, right? However, we're seeing this in Europe now, and it's going to get more so. The pain is coming home. Now at a time when there are very strong economic problems and they are increasing based on our foreign policy. You know, our foreign policy is coming home. There was a time when the U.S. could do this and still have a flourishing foreign policy. And now the pain is here and Europe is going to turn into a, you know, a, a dystopian hellscape. And uh, I think that's going to be a factor in all of this. Your thoughts, uh, Jim? Yeah, you know, you know, Simon Tisdell had an article about this in The Guardian yesterday where, you know, his line was, we are entering a hellscape. Europe is being destroyed by this. Sanctions are in complete blowback. We're facing a hellish winter. You know, we have to stop this war in Ukraine. How? By winning the battle militarily, by by big, you know, a, 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 milit a decisive military intervention. So this is, you know, and he's saying this is going to break up the, the EU. It, it has to because people are going to have to survive and countries are going to have to make deals with Russia. And, you know, and he's going, but if if we if we give in to, to Russia, if we have any kind of peace for uh, land for peace deal in Ukraine, that's going to be something we can't accept. So this is the this is the bind that the Americans have got themselves in, and that the Europeans, following the Americans, have got themselves in, and that's going to that's going to I think pretty quickly start eating away at the unity between Europe and the United States and within Europe itself, because you know these Polish and Poland and Lithuania they want to they want to fight against Russia. Uh, so we this is this is what's what's coming on, and you know uh, because the United States has decided decided to push. Ukraine to be its a spearhead against a military spearhead against Russia, and Russia won't accept it. And they're not going to accept it. And so now they created a situation that is threatening the economic unity, whatever economic unity there was of the West and uh, and the social and political stability of of the European countries, certainly. And it's interesting, you know, uh, one of these things in this Caitlin Johnson essay, she she quotes she she posts a 
a tweet in which someone, the Politico said, Boris Johnson told Emmanuel Macron that making a deal with Russia would give Putin license to manipulate both sovereign countries and international markets in perpetuity. We can't let the Russians do that. We got to let the Americans do it. That's what they're fighting for. You know, in fact, Russia couldn't do it by itself. That's the point. Russia is, you know, the world that's coming is a world in which no one country is going to be able to do that. But really, that's the situation that the United States, through NATO, wants to try to preserve, where it can in, ma manipulate sovereign countries and international markets in perpetuity. And it's not going to succeed in that. That's already over. And Caitlin Johnstone's piece, This Proxy War Has No Exit Strategy, I think she's absolutely right. And Joe Biden making the statement last week or the week before, he said this a number of times, that basically the United States is in Ukraine until it's over. Well, what does that mean? I mean, how do you define when here? This, this, that, that statement is incredible. And not only the statement, but when you look at the budget proposals that are coming out of Congress, the military budget proposals that are coming out of Congress, this is insanity. Yeah, I mean, but they have talked themselves into this and there's no way they can get out of it without looking like fools and admitting and whether they admit it or not, demonstrating that they've been defeated because they defined it this way themselves. That's why I brought up that Tisdale thing from yesterday. And and this is the problem. There is they want they want they want there to be no end to it because there's no good end for them. <laughs> there's no possible good end for them. The best thing that can happen here is that they can continue this war, some kind of conflict at a, at, a, at, a, at a level that's intense enough to cost Russia dearly in some political or economic sense, you know, and create problems in Russia. That is their strategy for ruling the world now, you know, and it's very difficult. They either going to do what Tisdall says, which is intervene militarily. You, he said, use the great force of NATO, which I mean, if he thinks he's going to destroy Russia, defeat Russia and Ukraine with that, it's going to be World War III. It's going to be a nuclear war. Even though he says, oh, no, no, this won't be a nuclear war. Well, he's got to be willing to recognize what he's saying. Yes, it will. And if he says it, if it's that important, then it's that important. Or they're going to have to see to Russia's demands in Ukraine, or they're going to have to do both in some respect. See, let Zelensky or some Ukrainian government cede to Russia's demands, but keep up a war against Russia that they'll never be at peace either in Ukraine or anywhere else. And that's going to be very costly again, not only not only to the Americans and not even most most directly to the Americans, but to the Europeans. And it's going to destroy the EU economically and politically. Uh, we got about a minute and a half. Let me ask you this, Jim. Collapse is the word. I think that the Ukrainian military and or political uh, people, that their politics and or their um, military is going to collapse and um, the, um, the the EU economically is going to completely collapse within, you know, within before the end of this winter, probably long before that. Your thoughts, Jim? We got about a minute, minute and a half. We're facing a kind of general collapse. It's bizarre. It's happening suddenly. This Ukrainian conflict has brought it to a head very quickly. I don't know what's going to happen. I think the Ukrainian army is on the verge of collapse, but who knows? You know, uh, you know, it's still slow, steady. Not not as slow, but it's steady going. Uh, and I think you know what we're seeing economically not just in terms of this war, but in terms of inflation, in terms of supply chains, in terms of the, in, the social insecurity of people in general that they're just tired of, and they're fighting in the streets about it, 
is going to lead, is leading, is already leading to, to political collapse, collapse of political institutions and of the, certainly of the public's uh, confidence in them. We've been talking with Jim Cavanaugh. He's a writer at thepolemicist.net and Counterpunch. You've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon, we hope you are informed and enlightened. We look forward to talking with you all tomorrow right here on Radio Sputnik. Be safe, peace, and blessings. We are out. 